0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Join me as I pray through Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. For the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, and I will not take their name to my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we pray as we gather, Lord, that you would show us your glory, Lord, we want to see your all-satisfying glory, your all-sustaining beauty. We pray, Lord, this morning as we look at the sacrament of baptism, we pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us, renew us, fill us. Lord, we pray that your Son would, would radiate from our lives in such a way for all to see for your glory and not ours. And Lord, as we come before you and as we come before your word and Lord, as I come before these people to speak, Lord, we know that we can do nothing apart from you. Lord, that there is no ability within any person to affect the changes that need to happen in this room. There are people who do not know you, Lord, and need to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. I can't make that happen. Lord, there are people in this room whose marriages are in very low places. Lord, I cannot fix that. Lord, there are people who have come here with uh, secret sins that, they, that brutalize their conscience and they want to be free from. I can't make that happen. Lord, there are people here that struggle with anxiety and depression and all sorts of inner darkness, and there's all sorts of relationship issues and, and, and out-of-control anger and um, out-of-control fear and, Lord, covetousness and the cares of this world and being choked out by desire for the things of this world, for, for riches and for uh, the pleasures of this world. Lord, I can't make any of that change, but you can, Lord. Your word is powerful. We open your word. We know that when we open it, there's freedom. As we look upon your son, we know that when we see your son by the power of the spirit, we are changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold your son. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cause your son to shine this morning as we open your word, Lord. You can do all things in this time. And we thank you so much how you've been so faithful to gather with us every week in this place and display your son powerfully. And so we pray that you do it for his glory, Lord, that you would guard your own glory. Give it only to your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer, we've been in a series on doctrine. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the sacraments. So we're going to look at baptism this week and the Lord's Supper next week. You guys might be surprised that we'd spend two weeks on the sacraments. I think in a lot of doctrine series that might be left out, especially in an area where the Lord's Supper tends to be taken pretty infrequently in our valley, and there's lots of Christians that actually have remained unbaptized in our valley, and so you might think that somehow the sacraments aren't important, but guys, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are vital parts of how God strengthens us in the gospel. Justin Holcomb said this, he said, when we're talking about the sacraments, we're not talking about some weird piece of furniture in the house of the Christian faith. We're talking about a load-bearing wall that is very significant for our identity and faith. You guys watch home shows? You know, like we want to make this open concept. Everything's got to be open, right? So you're knocking out walls and stuff, but you got to make sure, right, that that wall isn't what? A load-bearing wall, because then, you know, your ceiling sags and pretty soon your house falls in on you. And what we'll see this morning is that baptism in the Lord's Supper, especially baptism, is very significant to how God wants to strengthen us. Um, why has he given us the sacraments? First, he's given us these because of the weakness of our faith. God knows that our faith is weak and that we need more than to just hear the gospel word, but we actually need to see it and feel it and even in the Lord's Supper, taste it right, that we need these extra ways to take in what the gospel is about. Augustine said that the sacraments are visible words, so they're God's word made visible to help our faith, so that in addition to hearing the word preached, we actually see the gospel in baptism and, and communion repeated, reenacted, illustrated, even you could say dramatized, right? And so that's what we're seeing in these. And the Lord's done this um, with his people in the Old Testament too, as he made covenant promises with them, he gave them signs so they could visibly see his promise, you think about like Noah, right, and the sign he was given of the rainbow, right? With his promise to never destroy the earth again by water, he put gave a rainbow. Or you look at um, Abraham, you know, he's given a promise, he's given circumcision for his children. Or you look at uh, Moses, given Passover. Baptism's like that. It's a sign of the gospel, promises to us. And um, it's something for us to look upon. And it's something, guys, for us to continue to look upon. And I think some of us feel like with our baptism might have been a real long time ago. Maybe you were a kid. Maybe it was, you know, many, many years ago. You can kind of think, well, that's just like an item of obedience that I've checked off my list and now I move on. But what's interesting is, as you look in the New Testament, the apostles are continuously pointing people to look back at their baptism and understand more and more the significance of what that was about, the promises that baptism speaks of. And so I'd like for you guys to think: all of you who are believers right now. Think back to your baptism, you know. Think back to the time when you received this sign and think about these promises that I'm going to talk about and how God made those promises Um, for you to receive at your baptism. So they're to help our weak faith. They're also to weld us together as a church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper kind of weld us together. Ephesians 4.3 says, "...be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is Lord over all." And, um, and so our baptism is actually something that unites us to all other Christians, all the way 2,000 years, all the way forward as long as the world will continue, that we've been united with other Christians. And it's unfortunate, guys, that there's been actually massive division amongst Christians on baptism. I mean, baptism is meant to be a sign of our unity, and for, for so many years it's been made disunity, right? And well, I got baptized this way, I got baptized that way. Baptism is actually a way for us to identify ourselves with all other Christians, not distinguish ourselves from them. I think a lot of times, you know, we're sinners, and so we have this thing where we want to kind of make ourselves special from others, and sometimes we'll use anything, and baptism is actually a way that we're to identify with all other Christians, and not distinguish ourselves from other Christians, distinguish ourselves from the world, right? Shouldn't be trying to distinguish ourselves from each other, and I think as we drill down on the meaning of baptism this morning, you're actually going to feel a lot more unity with all other Christians, even if their way of baptism differs, and I think that desire for unity really pleases the Lord, guys. Uh, when you read through the New Testament, He desires for His church to be unified. And so, think back to your baptism, whenever it was. Maybe you were very young. Maybe it was more recent. What did God promise you in baptism? And He, the promises of baptism are the New Covenant promises. Let me read them to you in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five. These are the promises of the New Covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see three promises in there and the three promises are these, to make us clean See that in verse 25? I'll sprinkle water on you be clean. That's one of the promises of the new covenant. I will cleanse all your sin. Secondly, I will give you a new life. He says I'll put a new heart within you. I'll give you a whole new way of living. A whole new heart. And then he says I will fill you with my spirit. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk on my statutes. And that's really as you look through the New Testament and you see when they talk about baptism, the spiritual meaning of baptism, those are the three promises that are most connected to it. Is God is wanting to remind us that in Jesus' We're clean, that we have a whole new life, and that we have his spirit now within us. And so we're going to look at those three things. First one, baptism reminds us that in Christ we're clean. And this is probably the most obvious symbol, right? You know, as somebody goes down into water and comes out, it's a cleansing thing. Water cleanses us from filth. The waters of baptism remind us that through faith, all of our sins get washed away. Okay? Not by the waters of baptism, but by Christ, and baptism is a symbol of that. And there's been some confusion on this through church history, for sure. There have been those who have taught that the waters themselves of baptism remove sin. And it's a massive error, and that's been something that's been common throughout church history. in, the, in even in the early church, and even to this day, some baptize their infants thinking that it washes away original sin. There's sin inherited from Adam. How do we get rid of that sin? You know, the baptism actually washes away that sin. Um, that's, that's a view that's been held for a really long time. Side note, we do have people in our church that practice infant baptism. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but we have several members in our church that practice infant baptism, but not that kind. And it's very important to, to recognize that. They don't believe that it washes sin away from their babies, Okay. Why do they do it? They do it because they see a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament with the Old Testament sign of circumcision where all male infants were circumcised um, on the eighth day. And then in the New Covenant, they see a connection between circumcision and baptism. So they believe what they need to do is actually baptize their infants as a sign of the covenant, not saying their baby's saved, not saying their baby's sins are taken away. And it also has been historically a way of welcoming um, these children of believers into the covenant community of the church. Similar to the way we practice often infant dedication. Um, But they're actually giving the new covenant sign. And you might say, well, you know, how can baptism be a sign of these promises to an infant when the infant can't even, you know, think about those things, right? Well, the thinking is on this is that as they grow up, they're encouraged to actually trust in Jesus. It's not assumed that they're saved, it's not assumed that they're believers. As they grow up, they're encouraged to trust in the promises of the gospel. And once they do, they're able to look back at their baptism, as you're able to look back at yours, as a sign of those new covenant promises. So, close parentheses on that. They do not believe that it washes away sin, though. That's really really important thing. But there have been people throughout church history who have believed that. And so, there was an urgency about, you know, infants sick or whatever. We need to quick baptize them, get the sin off of them. That somehow, baptism is a sin removal mechanism. Um, Others early in church history were against that practice, but for a funny reason. They were like, okay, well, baptism is like a one-time sin erase card. You shouldn't waste that on a baby, right? You should save that. You want to use that like once you get married and get through some of those problematic teenage years, or you want to use it at the very end of your life. It's like a one-time, you know, bankruptcy where everything's washed away when you get baptized, and then I don't know what the thinking was from there on. But it's like, use it as late as possible. And so in church history, you'll see arguments against infant baptism. And, you know, those of you who are believers baptism, people will be like, yeah! And then you'll hear their reason, and you're like, no! You know, because their thinking is that it's a one-time sin erase card. But both of those things, guys, miss the point of baptism. The point of baptism is not that it self-washes away sin. Jesus washes away sin when we repent and trust in him. Baptism is a sign of that. It's a symbol of that. It's a reminder of that. And what's really cool about the way Jesus washes away our sin is that it's not a one-time erase all your past sin deal, right? When we come to Jesus and trust in him, he forgives us and makes us clean of all of our sins, past and future. They're all taken care of, okay? Far better than those church fathers that believed that it was a one-time, you know, sin cancellation thing. The truth in Jesus is that he removes all of your sin, past, present, future, right? And as I say that, I just wonder, for those of you who are, who are believers, I wonder, if you, I wonder if you remember how amazing that promise is, that you are clean, that you've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. I mean, that was a promise that rocked me when I was in eighth grade. So um, I grew up in a family that was a, a non-Christian family. Uh, we were a non-church-going family. Had an awesome childhood, though, common grace. It was an awesome childhood, very affirming parents. They're listening to this recording. Hey guys, um, and anyway, great family, but not church going, right? But I had a Catholic grandma, and she made sure that I went to catechism and did first confession and first communion and all that. And I loved those classes. And the cool thing about the classes was I learned about like the attributes of God, really solid. I learned about the Trinity. Really solid. I learned about the deity and humanity of Christ, the cross, the resurrection. I learned about tons of awesome theology. And as a kid that didn't go to church, I was like, this is amazing, you know? And then we learned the Lord's Prayer and get a little medal for it. That was fun and motivating. And, um, but the one thing I didn't learn there is I didn't learn the gospel. My understanding at that time, elementary school and stuff, was that I had this soul. It needs to be this perfectly white, clean thing for me to be acceptable before God in inner heaven. And every time I sin, there's a stain put on it. And, and those stains would keep me out of God's presence. So far, so good. It's reasonable theology for, for where I was at. Um, but the understanding I had of how it got clean was that I needed to go to the priest, um, confess my sin, do whatever he had me to do, and then it would get clean, right? Temporarily, right? And even as a kid, I was thinking, man, unless I get hit by a bus coming right out of the confession booth. Like, this isn't going to work for me. You know, I was realistic enough to know, like, I'm sinning all the time, and this is not a permanent cleansing. Fast forward, I was in eighth grade, and and the school I was going to was really violent, and was dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety, and parents were worried about me. They weren't believers yet, but they became believers later. They are now. And, um, and one of my mom's clients was like, hey, you should send him to the Christian school. Like, they won't attack him there, which was true. <laughs> and so I went to the Christian school, and uh, it was really cool because in chapel there, there was a pastor there, and I don't remember all the details. I don't know the guy's name or anything. But he explained the gospel, and it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And the explanation was all the same. You know, perfectly white soul, stain can't be in God's presence unless you're perfectly holy. And then he told me that Jesus, if I came to him, he would cleanse me permanently. As an eighth grader, I'm like that'll work. Like, I can't mess that up, you know? Like, this is amazing. And so, ever since then, I've just been rocked by this thing, probably because I was prepared for it the way I was, is like, this is amazing, guys. I don't know if you know how amazing this is. Jesus forgives your sins. You've been made clean by his blood, and it's permanent. You can't mess that up. It's amazing. And baptism, guys, is a sign of that, that if you'll trust in Jesus, he washes away all your sin forever. Forever. And, and it's a sign of that. And, and it's a sign that he's not just going to pay for the sin that you had before, but your future sin. Because, guys, how much of your sin was future when Jesus paid for it? All of it, right? He didn't just go like, well, I'll do it up until 2000, you know. No, he paid for all the sins of all the people that would ever trust in him. He actually paid for your literal sins that they've been prepaid. Your sins had been prepaid for on the cross. And when you come to Christ, you receive that. And you get ongoing cleansing right? You're going to send more, you get ongoing cleansing. First Peter one two says this, that we've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, that there's an ongoing sprinkling and cleansing of all of our sins, guys. Isn't that amazing? This is an amazing thing. You say, well, all religions basically teach the same thing. They don't. There isn't a religion that teaches that. That's actually completely unique. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you look at that word and it says, he's just. So it would be, if you confess your sin now as a Christian and he doesn't forgive it, what is that text saying? It would be what? It would be unjust. Why? Because the sin's paid for. The sin's paid for. You're asking for something that Jesus already purchased and he'll never turn you down for that. And I want to just ask those of you who are here, have you received this promise? Have you received the promise to be clean? Because, guys, if you haven't received this promise, I can only assume that you don't see your sin the way God sees it. That somehow you must be kind of blinded to how unclean you are in God's sight. Because, guys, if you saw your sin, Josh used a really graphic analogy for this a few months ago. If you see your sin the way God sees it, you would do anything you could to be clean. You'd be like Lady Macbeth, you know, just trying to find any way to get that sin off of you, if you could really see the way God sees your sin. And, um, And so you must not see it. You must not see it the obvious way that he does. You realize that the Lord sees not just our actions. It doesn't just hear our words, but he knows our thoughts and desires. Guys, Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You should really sit with that. If you haven't trusted in Jesus and come to him for that kind of cleansing, you should sit with that text and look at each word. No creature, we're the creature, hidden from his sight. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must what? Give an account. Guys, there is a time when you will see your sin the way God sees it. It'll be on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, in the light of God's holy gaze, you will suddenly see yourself exactly the way you really are. not that an intense thought? You will actually see your sin then for what it is. You will see yourself either covered with all the sins of your whole life. Because sometimes we think, oh, that was years ago. I'm sure it's kind of fallen off of me now. No. <laughs> You, you will see yourself covered with all the sins of your whole life, or you will see yourself completely clean in Christ. What an exquisite feeling that is, seeing God come and his holy gaze come, and you see yourself completely clean in Christ. You'd be like, whoa, okay, this worked, <laughs> right? C.S. Lewis says it this way about the judgment. He says, it will be an infallible judgment. If it is favorable, we shall have no cause to fear. If unfavorable, we'll have no hope that it is wrong. We shall not only believe, but we will know beyond a doubt in every fiber of our appalled or delighted being that as the judge has said, so we are. We shall perhaps even realize in some dim fashion that we should have known it all along. That part's creepy. You know, that every person will go like, "Ah, you know what, I knew this all along. Don't wait, guys, for that verdict. It will be too late to reverse it, right? It will be too late to reverse it. Perhaps his verdict, you know, I I would just plead with you, believe his verdict now. He's already made it very clear. There's tons of passages on what the verdict is on your sin. Believe his verdict now and receive the cleansing now. Listen to him in Isaiah 1.18. This is so cool. Listen to the tone of God. Come now. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. He's like, come here. Come now. Let us reason together Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. Isn't that awesome? Do you just love how the Lord invites you? He says, no, 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 Come, come here. Come here. You know. You know you need this. You know you need cleansing. And I will give it to you. Your sins will be whiter than snow. They'll be removed for free, forever, right? If you trust in him, you leave here clean. You don't have to, like, wait, go home, think about it. What's to think about You're like, well, maybe I'll get a better offer, you know, like, (laughs) I'm not sure what you're thinking about, you know, I'm not sure what you're thinking about, you want to take this while you can, right, forever, don't leave here without having that, baptism is a dramatization of that, right, that in Christ you're clean, just as you remember when you were baptized and you came out squeaky clean, you are squeaky clean before the Lord and you will be squeaky clean when he returns, which is so awesome. Second one, God's promise to give you new life, baptism is a picture of God's promise to give you new life, and that was the text that Sarah read in Romans 6.1. Take a look there. We're going to spend a little time there. Romans 6.1 says this, "...what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death." In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A little bit of context on this. In Romans 5, Paul was rejoicing in the fact that for a person who trusts in Jesus, you can never run out of grace. You can never run out of cleansing power. There'll never be a point where you're like, okay, you know, you're, you know, it's like there used to be phone plans, right, that weren't unlimited. Now they're unlimited. You know, you had a limited amount of data. Sorry, you're done. That's all you got, right? The gospel's not like that. The gospel's not like, hey, you've kind of used up all your miles. You've used up all your, all your data. You've used up all your forgiveness. Where there's more sin, there's more grace. And he actually says that in 520. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's no end to grace for those who are in Christ. Every sin's forgiven, no matter what. And so Paul says in chapter 6, he goes, What shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's like, Hey, if we got this, why don't we use it? Right? What's his answer? By no means. Of course not, right? But what's his reason? The reason isn't what? The reason isn't like, Well, you know, you're going to run out of grace if you keep doing that. No, what's the reason? Yeah, he says, he says in verse 2, second half, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Isn't that an interesting answer? The answer isn't that you'll run out of the forgiving power of Jesus. It's that you're a new person. He says, how can, you, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism. And then he talks about so that we could walk in newness of life. He's like, there's no way to keep doing this because you've actually been given a new life. You've died to sin, he says in verse 2. You say, well, I don't remember dying to sin. When did this happen? Verse 3 talks about that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. And there he's using baptism as a symbol of a deeper baptism. That when you came to faith in Jesus, you were united to Jesus such that his sin, your sin was given to him and his righteousness was given to you, and that now you're considered to have Jesus' past which is wild, right? That you're connected to him such that his death on the cross becomes your death to your old life. And his resurrection becomes the beginning of your new life. And so baptism, guys, is an illustration. It's a reenactment of your spiritual union with Christ. And it's actually a sign of his promise to give you new life. And it's a really cool graphic thing, too, because, you know, you guys will see this afternoon when we take a guy like Ross here and we baptize this guy. And, um, and he goes down into the water, right? It's a picture of dying to the old life. Isn't that a cool image? And, you know, some people have said, you know, like, hey, can you hold me under a while? And we can. You decide. You decide how long. I like to do it until their legs stop kicking. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. If you're afraid of drowning and stuff, we won't, we won't do that. But it's an awesome picture where as you're lowered into the water, it's like you are died to your old life, united with Christ, that he died to death and you're united to him. And so you've died to your old life. And then when you come back up, which is the best part, and when you come back up, it's a picture of you resurrecting your spiritual resurrection, right? That you've been raised to a new life. That when you trusted in Jesus, died your old life, raised to a new life. Because God gave you a new life. It's a real thing. It's a real thing you can learn to live out of. And God's given us a sign of baptism to remind us of this. And some of you guys who have been baptized need to be reminded of your baptism. Because you've gotten kind of beat down by temptation and sin. And you started to think like, Maybe, you know, maybe none of the promises are true. Maybe I just need to keep living like a slave. Maybe, maybe I just, you know, I thought I'd live anyway, but obviously I'm not. And, you know, you got dragged down, right, by temptation and sin. You guys know when Moses came to the, the people of Israel and told them, hey, I'm going to get you guys out of here, out of Egypt. Do you, know you know what happened? It says they didn't believe him because they'd been beat down for so long in slavery that they had a crushed spirit and they couldn't even hope in it right? And that happens to us. But baptism reminds you guys of God's promise that you've been raised to newness of life, and and you can live in that newness now. Like, you may have lived in the newness for a while and kind of fallen back into the world. You can come back and live in that newness now. That promise is still good. You haven't destroyed that promise. That promise is still good. Baptism reminds us of this. And, um, To some of you guys who have been a Christian a while, um, I just want to say to some of you, and you know who you are, some of you have a very low view of sanctification, a very low view of how much God's going to change you. Maybe you've been Christian for decades or whatever. You have extremely low, and I hear it from you guys in the way you talk about sin. And you guys like to bring up Romans 7 and say, you know, I do the things I don't want to do, and, you know, what can I do about it, and that kind of thing, right? Guys, Romans 7 is not where you're supposed to live. As if somehow Romans 7 nullifies 6 and 8. <laughs> you know, there's a whole chain here. Guys, just so you know, and maybe we'll dig into this another time, but Romans 7 is a picture of what your life will be like if you trust in your own strength and the law to change you. Okay? So don't use it as a big excuse or a big explainer for why your life lacks power. It doesn't lack power because that's where God wants you. Right? It, that is, you should be looking at Romans 6 and 8 to show you what to expect. You will fall into 7. You don't have to live in 7. You want to live in Romans 6. How much change should you expect in the Christian life? According to Romans 6, it should look like a resurrection. Okay, Your life should look like an ongoing resurrection. That's what you have available to you. And we all, like I said, fall into seven. We all fall into sin. We all fall into times of hardness and stuff like that. But I want you to hear this morning. I don't want this to depress you. I want this to excite you. That the promise still stands, guys. The promise still remains to live in Romans 6, to be raised to newness of life. And maybe today is the day you're a Christian for a while, falling into sin, hearing about baptism. Maybe you come and see him. And you remember, as you see this person coming out, like, I remember that for me. And I am going to come to Christ and start really living out the promise. In verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if you read the verses on from there, 12, 13, and 14, it gives you specific instructions in how to begin to live out that newness. And so that's a great reason to be a part of these baptisms, is not just to celebrate their promise that god has for them but to see a reenactment of your own as you're seeing these people come out of the water you'd be like you know what the lord did that to me he took me from deadness and brought me to life and it can be a time for a fresh start for you you know the gospel is about that right that at any point you return to the lord and you say lord i want to walk in newness of life help me to really live differently and so believe this visible word repent and start new Um, it should look like newness of life not wallowing in deadness Right. Um, third. So it's a it's a, about the promise of cleanness. It's about the promise of new life, and it's about the promise to fill you with His Spirit. Um, baptism is a sign of God's promise to fill you with His Holy Spirit. It's another water image, right? There have been a lot of water images this morning, you know, like cleaning, um, the, being immersed in and coming out. This is more of a pouring example. Um, we heard in 1 Peter 1 of a sprinkling example, sprinkled with his blood. But here, um, it's, it's about the promise that God will pour out a spirit into us. Joel 2, 28 says, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions on every male and female servant in those days I will pour out my spirit. So this was a promise hundreds of years before Jesus came that there was going to be a new era where God pours out his spirit in a very unique way upon his people. We still live in that era, by the way. A lot of times we think like, okay, Pentecost... You know, disciples are around, they die off, and then we're in some, like, really defunct time period, you know, that just kind of waits for the end. No, we're still in the age of the Spirit. We're still in the age of this, where God is pouring out a Spirit on all people. And it's kind of interesting, this whole pouring image, because you might think, like, okay, wait, but the Holy Spirit's a person. And He is. He's a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's God Himself. But He's often described as being poured like a liquid, which is really interesting throughout the Old Testament, as either oil or water. And throughout the Old Testament, there was this promise that one day there's just going to be this massive outpouring of God's spirit to his people. And then you see John the Baptist come, and he's introducing who Jesus is, and he's baptizing people with water. But then he says something really interesting about Jesus. He said, I baptize with water, but someone's coming that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? Going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Your water baptism is a picture of of a spirit baptism, of the Holy Spirit being poured upon you and into you, and um, last, uh, on Wednesday, we had a group of guys at my house, we we're talking about the book of Mark, and we got on a subject of, um, is the Christian life simple or hard, okay, which was interesting, so one guy's like, it's simple, you know, like, look at it, simple, he told, what he tells us to do, simple, right, and I think he meant it's clear, I don't think he meant it's easy, but the other guy was like, oh, no, it's hard. It's not simple. It's like, is it simple or is it hard? You know, and I think they were debating about two different categories, but that's fine. Let me clarify and say, is a Christian life easy or hard? (laughs) You should have been there. You know what Jesus would say? Christian life for you? Impossible. Right? It's not like a little hard, kind of difficult, you know, like maybe it's hard, maybe it's not. It's impossible. Okay? For him, it's easy. Right? Christian life, impossible for you, easy for him. And he says, you know what? I will live through you, okay? So there's only two ways to do the Christian life. You can try the impossible route or you can try him empowering and living through you. Those are the only two options. We don't like sometimes do okay, right? We're either abiding in him and seeing him live through us or we're abiding in our own power and it's a disaster. Jesus says in John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's impossible for us, possible for me, easy for him. He will abide in us. He will live through us. And that's what Paul talked about too. Paul talked about his Christian life. He didn't really talk about like easy, hard. This is what he said. Colossians 1.29. For this I toil. Okay, it sounds hard. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Isn't that an interesting sentence? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In your baptism, God promised to pour his spirit into you and to fill you with that kind of power. And that's what the Christian life's about, is trying to figure out how to do that, okay? And I would agree, that's hard. (laughs) The hard part is trying to figure out how to abide in him every moment. That's the hard part. And that's where all the smart effort is put, by the way. If you want to put some effort into something, you put it into abiding in him. That's where the smart effort's put. How do we do that? How do we practically do that? I was reminded this week of an acronym, which you will love. It's APTAT, which is not a word. A-P-T-A-T. You might want to write that down. APTAT. A-P-T-A-T. Pastor um, had, had taught me this. Actually, it's not somebody I know. It's somebody famous. But his, his acronym, APTAT, is admit, pray, trust, act, think. Okay? APTAT. Admit. First, we admit that we can't do it in ourselves, just like John 15 says. So if you've got like somebody you got to forgive and you can't, you've got some sin that you have a, a very difficult time resisting. If you have somebody that's been very difficult to love, you have somebody that you're you know really trying to serve, you have trouble even getting out of bed in the morning. I mean, whatever it is, you is, first you admit. You admit, I can't do anything apart from you, Lord. Second, pray. Pray for the Spirit to empower you, right? Pray for the Spirit to empower you. Praying according to that promise of your baptism that he will pour his spirit upon you. And then trust. Trust in some promise. Trust in one of the promises that he will empower you. Isaiah 41.10 is great. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that a great promise? That's a power of spirit empowerment. So you admit you can't do it. You pray. You trust. And then you act in faith. This one's really important. It's people who kind of sit around and they will go like, oh, well, you know, Lord help me, blah, blah, blah. And they don't act. You need to act. The acting is the trusting. So you do the act of obedience believing that he is going to fill you as you do it. So if somebody's hard to forgive, you grant them forgiveness. Trusting that he is going to give you the power to do it. You um, dealing with... You know, pornography or something like that, you walk away from that screen, trusting that that is Him empowering you to do that. Um, If you're, you know, kind of tempted to get in a fight with your spouse or something like that, you leave that quietly, trusting the power to do it. Go away and pray. Um, You have an opportunity to share the gospel, you start talking, (laughs) trusting that He is going to speak through you, right? We need to act. Um, You. Uh, have difficulty serving in your family with your kids or whatever you do it trusting that he's going to empower it right and then you thank him you thank him you give him credit for every time he does that and you're like lord i didn't think i could do that and i know i can't i admit it i couldn't but you did it through me you know you actually did something through me guys we should be praying regularly that we would have his supernatural life flowing through our bodies these carcasses we carry around. We can do nothing apart from Him, but he will empower as we trust in Him. And baptism dramatizes that. As the, as the water is, is, is covering that person, it's a picture of how He pours out his spirit to those who will trust in Him. And so in baptism, three promises: Trust in Jesus, He makes you clean, He makes you new, He fills you with his power. And guys, I think as we focus on that meaning of baptism, um, those real promises that he makes in baptism, I think it will give us a whole lot more unity with other Christians that may do a different mode or, or maybe they baptize their infants or whatever, but we have these promises that we hold in common. I mean, as, as, more, as much as we drill down on what it means, then we can really see one baptism as a real thing, because I, I don't think that when he says one Lord, one faith, one baptism that we're supposed to be like, yep, they do it my way. No, I don't think that's what that's about. I think that we're to be united with every other Christian in the promises we've been given in the gospel. And this sign of baptism, guys, so cool. It, when you get baptized, you're actually being connected with 2,000 years of Christians and all the Christians that are to come. Um, from, it's like a, this massive family, all been baptized from every tribe and nation and people and language. Some of these people got martyred when they got baptized, and we're connecting with them as one family. Throughout time. It's an awesome thing. And it also reaffirms our commitment to each other in this local church, right? In our baptism, guys, we are vowing to care for one another as a spiritual community. We actually have a question in our baptism about that where we'll ask you guys today Are you receiving this person as a member of this body? Are you um, going to encourage them and pray for them and, and help them along their journey? And we're all going to say, We do, God helping us. Isn't that awesome? 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. So please come and be a part of that. And if you have received the promises of the gospel, but you haven't been baptized, let us know. Josh, once again, right there, we'll actually get you totally prepared. We can do that today we we'll make sure that you understand. I mean, obviously, you just had a sermon on it, so this would probably be the best possible time. You do understand what baptism is about, but we would love for you to be a part of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, you've done all the saving. <laughs> it's so awesome. That you've made us clean, and there's no way we can ruin that. We just keep trusting in you. We, too, we sin, and we fall into sin, Lord. We come back to you. We repent, Lord turn from our sin. We admit it specifically to you. We ask for your forgiveness for that and we are assured that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us our sins because you have had them paid for by your son. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that we don't have to stay at whatever place we are in our spiritual lives right now. And we don't have to try and claw our way out either but you will make us walk in newness of life. And so I just pray for anybody that's here that just really feels like they're not walking in newness of life. That they're really in a place of deadness and coldness and hardness and and apathy and that temptation seems to win over and over again, Lord. I pray that they would come to you and receive power from you. Lord, you have promised us these things, and they're very hard to believe sometimes. They're very hard to believe when we are failing over and over again in a place of just continual defeat, that we feel like Romans 7, where it's like, the things I want to do, I can't do. I do the very things I hate. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet, Lord, your promise is, is here that if we will return to you, you'll receive us with open arms and empower us. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to really make us spiritually empowered people, Lord. We don't want to keep living in our own strength. We don't want to keep trying to live the Christian life or, or live out the mission you have for us in our own strength. We are weak. We can do nothing. We pray, Lord, that you'd make us to abide in you. Teach us that, Lord, whether it's through a weird acronym or however you do it, Lord. We pray that you would every day wake us up with the promise that you will live through us, you have poured out your spirit upon us. As we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we just pray that you would feed us, that this is another means by which you strengthen our faith and feed us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be richly fed. Thank you for your word and the rich feeding it is. And we thank you for the Lord's Supper and the way you feed us in a different way through that. Lord, I thank you for this body, Lord. Make us a true spiritual family more and more. Lord, we love these people. We pray that we would all finish well that we would encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still today, and that we'd all reach the, the end of our journey when you return together. Have great stories of your conquests. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and it's another sign of the covenant, a way that he nourishes and strengthens us. And we're going to look at it in depth next week, so I won't talk a lot about it today, but the Lord's Supper shows us what it costs God to love you, You know, when I'm talking to people that that believe in other faiths besides Christianity, a question that I really enjoy asking is, what did it cost your God to love you? Christianity has the best answer to that, right? What did it cost your God to love you? Because a lot of other faiths and and beliefs, God has some vague positive feelings for you. They didn't cost him anything. What it costs God to love us is that on the night before Jesus was crucified at the Last Supper, He said this: "This cup is that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood." It costs God His blood, Cost Him His life to love us. Cost Him His life to forgive us. In, in Luke twelve fifty, Jesus calls His ba- His death a baptism. He says, "I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished." And what he's talking about there is he's talking about there's this Old Testament imagery in, in Psalm 88. that talks about the wrath of God being like waves that are like washing over a person. He says, your wrath lies heavy on me and, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. That God's just punishment of sin is described as drowning in a violent sea. And the gospel, this table reminds us that Jesus threw himself into the violent sea of God's judgment so that we could have the peaceful waters of salvation. Jesus was baptized into our death so we could be baptized into his life. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, come forward, take the bread and the cup. The bread's gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. And we'll just take that individually, or you can take it as families, take it with the people next to you. But let's remember his great baptism into death for us. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at Org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.